Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we see all kinds of things happening in the news, wars and rumors of wars, and economies uh, on the brink of some sort of disaster, runaway inflation. All these things were things that were common to the early Christians, and uh, they saw that uh, unfolding as the decline and fall of the Roman Empire was taking place and the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, according to numerous, numerous historians, even at the time, even 100 A.D., Plutarch was uh, talking about the destruction and uh, decay of the Roman Empire. And he had a number of different conclusions as to what we could do to fix it. And, uh, of course, if you go to Judea, there were all kinds of guys who had ideas about how to fix what was going on in Judea at the time of Christ. There were the Pharisees. They thought they had a plan. And, of course, much of their plan was already implemented because they had been uh, much allied with Herod. And Herod had had the kingdom since he had been put up in power by Augustus Caesar, and Augustus Caesar had power after a civil war in Rome. And all these different events in history leading up to the arrival of Jesus Christ was altering the way in which people viewed uh, history, viewed government, uh, viewed religion, and the roles that they played. We can go into our own history which I've lived for the, you know, at least uh, almost three quarters of a century now. We're getting up there. And uh, we watched a lot of things unfold. Uh, uh, I wasn't around when FDR was president, but I was able to see a lot of things. And my father was around during that time. And I learned things over the years uh, that... There were great changes taking place in America. We had our civil war with Abraham Lincoln and uh, the South seceding from the Union. And all kinds of changes came out of that. Then we had uh, guys like Woodrow Wilson. I'm just making huge leaps across the pond, so to speak. Uh, Woodrow Wilson brought in all kinds of things like the United Nations and the Federal Reserve and... And so that was a huge change. There had been banks, not really quite like Federal Reserve before, but there was battles in the early presidencies of the United States as to whether you can have these banks and not have these banks. And even the the American Revolution was fought mostly over this idea of currency and trade and commerce because it had to do with certain men getting rich and other men being strangled by economies and by taxation. Uh, not taxation without representation, but taxation without consent. And, of course, inflation is one of those... Uh, inflation is a form of taxation, and uh, that is pretty much without your consent. But a question arises when we begin to understand this quest for the kingdom. 
And that's, you know, the name of the show is usually uh, presented, our podcast is presented as uh, Keys to the Kingdom. All of the shows that we put up is referenced by Keys to the Kingdom. And we have a lot of those shows posted all the time uh, over the last uh, 10 or more years, uh, quite a bit more than 10 years, I guess, now that we've been doing the podcast. And, of course, I've been doing the writing for decades and decades. Uh, but you can go back and see our archives at keysofthekingdom.info and at uh, preparingyou.com. I was talking to people yesterday, and they were so fascinated by some of the things I was sharing with them. As we were loading hay uh, onto a trailer that uh, they wanted to know where the website was. Well, there's all kinds of websites. <laughs> we have hisholychurch.org and preparingyou.com. So, but we've I've added a huge amount to those sites over the last few years and uh, and the uh, last couple of weeks and the last couple of days I've added even more because I've read a number of books and articles to do with that time, that historical time. All kinds of things are coming out. Archaeologists are working all the time. Authors, scholars are working. And you're beginning to have revealed many of the things that were taking place at that time that uh, are so foreign to our thinking because of our previous view of history that even the historians are having difficulty in piecing all these pieces of the puzzle together. And one book in particular that I was reading, uh, which was about cleansing the temple. And uh, it was written, uh, if I can remember his full name, I'm so bad at names, but it was it was about cleansing the temple and banking, believe it or not. That was uh, in in the title of the book, Temple Cleansing and Temple Bank. And it was by Neil Hamilton. I should have remembered Hamilton because Hamilton is one of my least favorite early American uh, founding fathers. <laughs> because not nothing personal with Hamilton, but a lot of his ideas, uh, he was embracing the idea of paper currency and borrowing the capital uh, of a nation. Uh, he thought that was great and we could stimulate growth. Well, the habit of borrowing is the habit of breaking the Sabbath. It is getting the benefit of funds before you've earned the right to them and now you have created an obligation where you have to pay them back and when you're paying them back at interest, some of the interest back then in the American Revolution was 30%. That's staggering. Can you can you grow crops fast enough to pay off a 30% mortgage? <laughs> so uh, he had a lot of ideas that were not really good, but they're very popular today. But in this book, uh, Temple Cleansing uh, by uh, Neil Hamilton, Neil Q. Hamilton is his full name, you can see certain things that he is talking about, about the death of Jesus Christ in Nazareth. This Jesus of Nazareth. Remain, uh, that his death remained a problem because exactly why did they kill him? What, what had he done that, to warrant death? He claimed to be the Messiah. At least there were people who were shouting that he was the Messiah. The, that's not blasphemy. And... Uh, 
even the the reference to the fact that he supposedly claimed to be God, uh, that's a that was a put up propaganda thing by Caiaphas, who was put into power by his father-in-law, so that they could find you know they had been trying to catch Jesus in some kind of uh, criminal act, so that, because what he was preaching was needed to be canceled. Uh, at that time, that's a that's a term we can uh, understand today. Is that he was saying things that people wanted to shout down. While, but the more he did what he was doing, which was carrying on the work of John the Baptist, the more people liked him and began to come out in favor of what he was suggesting. They wouldn't all go the route that he was saying, the way that he was saying. But they liked what he was saying, and they began to form these large crowds. But the more he got into the specifics of what he was teaching the people about the kingdom of God at hand, within your reach, that you were supposed to be seeking, that was for the living and not for the dead, that was on earth and was appointed to the apostles the little flock, as he said he would. He said he was going to take the kingdom away from the Pharisees and give it to somebody else who would bear fruit. Now, even in this book that I I was reading by uh, uh, Hamilton here, uh, he says a number of things. He sees that, that there's a problem with why did they kill Jesus? And, of course, he gets into the fact that the temple was a bank. The temple at Ephesus was a bank. Romans had lots of different temples and they all provided services for the people and for government and through government. Uh, Certain temples were always open during war. And when there wasn't a major war, the temples were closed because the temples were used to finance the war. Because Romans had no prohibition against making war profitable, I figure if we have to go and defeat you because of some justified reason, that we're going to take a spoil. And that was real popular. Now, with Israel, they weren't supposed to do that. But with it, for the most part, they were, they were prohibited from doing that. But for, uh, other countries like Rome, that was actually a common practice. And in, early on in Rome, they they had a very high sense of justice. Like I've told the story before of Julius Caesar when Julius Caesar, he wasn't the emperor of Rome, but he was an emperor because the emperor kind of means commander-in-chief and he was put in charge of a military uh, legions. And so he was the commander-in-chief of those legions, not the commander-in-chief of Rome. The imperator as an office of the Roman Constitution didn't exist until Augustus Caesar. So Julius Caesar was never really an emperor. The first emperor was Augustus Caesar. But as the word was used to describe the head of the army, Imperator, yeah, he was an emperor. But he didn't have, he wasn't the political emperor. He was just the emperor of the army and there was a prohibition on the army coming into Rome and being used to enforce civil authority within Rome. That was crossing the Rubicon. And we still 
talk about those principles in the law today. So understanding what was going on back then can help us in the law today, in history today, because we're unfolding a new history as we see people invading Ukraine, the people I were talking to yesterday. Um, they have relatives by marriage that are in the Ukraine. It's, am- it's amazing the number of people I know that have ma- married Ukrainian girls. What, why was that? Well, we've talked about that in the past because their economy is so horrible in the Ukraine, even though it's the, one of the richest countries, uh, that a lot of the girls married Americans because life is better in America and they could help their families out. Um, but uh, and for a lot of other reasons. But the reality is, is that's that's creating a history of its own. It's creating a cult. All the people you bring into your country are adding to your culture in the melting pot of America. If you bring enough people in, it it may dilute the culture that originally made America great. If you bring too many in too fast, which we see going on in Germany and parts of Europe. And, of course, the reason they're bringing all these immigrants isn't, isn't, in because, uh, isn't because they are compassionate. They like to think they're compassionate. But the reason is their birth rate is so low in these countries from Russia to the Ukraine to uh, many of the parts of Europe. That if they didn't bring in other people, they wouldn't have enough people to even run their factories, much less buy their products. So it was, it was about business. And of course, that's why Ukraine was being invaded. It was about business. Because Ukraine was drilling for oil and gas and they would become competitors against, uh, the, so, uh, the Russians, originally the Soviet Union, but now the Russians who make most of their money on selling oil and gas to Europe. Uh, they, and Ukraine was making a billion dollars a year just leasing Russia the pipeline. Uh, not even a pipeline they own, just a space to put the Russian pipeline on. They were getting a billion dollars a year. But if they could pump their own oil and gas, they could even make more. But because the, a lot of these people nationalized their oil fields... This it creates a huge inflow of currency into their government, and then their government can use that currency to appease the people in a socialist system. They don't have to have as high a taxes because they're all taking money from the uh, natural resources of the country. We saw Venezuela didn't have that, then they had that, and it destroyed their economy. Well, the supposed free country of Ukraine has had that for decades and decades, but all their natural resources weren't developed. But the money is flowing into the government, and it is is classified by Europeans as one of the most corrupt governments in Europe. Uh, the, the, you know, the flow of money through com- companies like Burisma and there's, I mean, there's dozens of these oligarchy companies that are taking money through. Well, the same thing, of course, has been going on in Russia for years when they supposedly dismantled the Soviet Union. Uh, they did not dismantle their KGB and much of that was run by a thug mentality. So, even though they brought in perestroika because they had to do something to try to get... I, I know people who went over to Russia to teach 
people, different industries. Uh, because they, they had been in socialism or communism for so long that even when Perestroika came and they said, well, we're going to give this business to all the employees of the business, just going to give it to them. Land, buildings, existing business, and they could reap all the profits. That's the kind of things that was going on in Perestroika. They didn't want it. They just wanted that check coming in. And uh, after about six months of, uh, actually one of my relatives by marriage, uh, who was over there trying to teach them these industries, he came back and the first thing he said is they are genetically dead. Everybody who has gumption to work and be industrious and apply themselves has left the country or been culturally destroyed by communism. And he said the only hope it had was a small child that he met over there and and the, the child gave him uh, some books because the kid was an avid reader and everything. He says that's the only hope for Russia is this next generation coming up. Now that, that child's a young adult now, but uh, uh, the the fact is is that this institution of socialism was has just and communism is just socialism on steroids uh was destroying the culture of the people it was degenerating the people and like this is supposed to be kind of a news flash well the reality is when Herod came into Judea and was somewhat propped up and sponsored by Augustus Caesar that he implemented a system of social welfare through the temple. It was a government temple. The temple was a government temple. He built this second temple. Whenever they say second temple, this is a major key in understanding what was going on in the second temple. This this book by uh, Neil Q. Hamilton, Temple Cleansing and Temple Bank, it opens a perspective that a lot of people don't get, and we've been talking about for years and decades, is that these institutions, all the way back to the golden calf, were central banks. Even the ability of Pharaoh to mass this huge amounts of grain so that all the people around about him, all the Egyptians, became subject to the Pharaoh, what we call the Pharaoh. They weren't always calling themselves the Pharaoh. But they entered into what would be today called a Corby system of statutory labor. We can find it in, made reference to the same concept in Isaiah and other parts of the Bible where the people went under tribute. Because now this central government with its central bank is going to provide social welfare. David talks about it. What should have been for your welfare has become a snare. And, and it's a return to the bondage of Egypt where you don't own your labor anymore. You, you may be able to keep, you know, uh, 60% of your labor or 80% of your labor like it was in Egypt. That's what it was. It's one-fifth of your labor belonged to the government. And if that's the case, you're in the bondage of Egypt. That's what the bondage of Egypt was. If 
if the gold and silver, the lawful title to gold and silver in your purse, isn't in your purse anymore, but it's in a treasury or a golden calf or a golden statue of some goddess, <laughs> then that's also part of the bondage of Egypt because all the gold went into the government. If you have only a legal title to your property, you know, like you're paying property tax. If if you have legal title to property, you will owe property tax on that property. Because the legal title does not include the beneficial interest or what they also call the beneficial use. So because you don't own the beneficial use, you'll have to pay the use tax, which we call property tax today, on that property. And that proves to you that you don't own it because if you don't pay that for two, three years in a row, they will take the property away from you. I was just mentioning that to somebody here in Oregon because he sold a piece of property and had to pay $300,000 in ta- uh, uh, taxes, but that was on capital gains. But the reason they can charge these things isn't because they're the government. It's because you're back in the bondage of Egypt. Now that, people don't want to hear that. They want to cancel me. <laughs> if I tell them that. They're, no, no, this is the freest country in the world. No, it's not. No, it, it, it is one of the greatest mission fields in the world for the gospel of the kingdom of God. Because Christ was trying to restore every man to his family and to his possessions. Like the year of Jubilee. That's what you're supposed to do in the year of Jubilee. Is re- every seven years or certainly every 50 years, uh, there was supposed to be this restoration uh, across the board on the year of Jubilee was to be restored. Every man to his family and every man to his possessions. Right now in America, in Australia, in South Africa, in Europe, yeah, of course, uh, certainly in the Ukraine and the Soviet Union, the man does not own his family, nor does he own his land, nor does he own his cattle, nor does he own his sheep, no, nor does he own a lot of stuff. He has legal title to them in some of those places, but he doesn't own them. They're held in a Sestuique trust. Now people, you start throwing out words like that and people start, their brain starts fogging over. This is what was going on in Judea. This, and this is what was going on in Rome. And we, we, we quote people in history, the historian of historians, Polybius, who says that in these systems of social welfare by the state, what Alexis Tocqueville calls legal charity, that the people are degenerated. The culture has changed. Their conscience is seared. We see that in the Bible. Conscience is seared. Uh, you know, I was quoting where Romans talks about how people were given over to unnatural lust, which is homosexuality. They're, they're saying, well, you're not just... you. Homosexuality is a choice. Well... It involves a choice, but it's not necessarily always a choice. It's an addiction. Now, we'll have to explain more of that when we come back, and we won't go into it in deep, but the point is, I'm trying to understand when you change all these things in your society, it changes society itself. And that's what was happening in Judea, that's what's happening today, that's what's happening in Ukraine, and we can do something about it if we admit it. We'll be right back.
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, anyway, uh, before we get too far off on different tangents, this idea of uh, changing the way in which society relates one to another, the people of society relate one to another, and changing the way in which they relate to whatever they call their government, alters the people themselves. This is why Christ talked about the way and being a doer of the word and why he said the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. Why Polybius said that if you become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others, which is what we see in in Venezuela and, and uh, these different countries, and we were seeing at the time of Jesus Christ and at the time of Augustus Caesar rising to power and Julius Caesar invading Gaul, that the people were beginning to become accustomed to living at the expense of others. First, first the Gauls, and then uh, the people that they uh, defeated during their civil war. This is this is how uh, the Roman people were degenerated, and uh, people like. Uh, uh, looking at uh, uh, Plutarch. Plutarch was explaining that uh, that the, the, the people uh, in, in his life of Coriolanus, uh, he says that the man who first ruined the Roman people was he who first gave them treats and gratuities. He's talking about that legal charity. Uh, and, and then he goes on to say, the real destroyers of liberties of the people is he who spreads amongst them bounties, donations, and benefits. That was the one who was destroying the people. And of course, now we're supposed to think that the Soviet, or the Russians are the enemy of the Ukraines, and of course they are invading. But, uh, you know, a lot of the people that are manning the army and invading don't really want to invade. They'd rather go back home. Uh, I don't know exactly what the numbers are. Of course, the media is going to make you think that they all don't want to be there. And I'm sure a lot of them don't. I know a lot of guys who went to Vietnam didn't want to be there. <laughs> but, but they still send them to Vietnam. And they spent more money on Vietnam than it would have cost to buy Vietnam. You know, now they're talking about these bio labs in uh, the Ukraine that America built, and we know they built it. I mean, the media is still trying to cancel that narrative, but the reality is we have, you know, there's a paper trail of the building of those uh, bio labs. Well, we've built one in Vietnam now. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, by the same company has built one in Vietnam. So, What's going on behind the scenes we don't see because we're, our, our thinking is adjusted by the media and it's very good at doing it. took a lot more work to do it back in the days of Rome. But the destroyer is not the oligarchs. It's not the invading armies. It's the real destroyers of liberty, those who spread amongst them gifts, gratuities, and benefits. So if you want liberty and freedom... You don't want to get it the way the zealots were getting it. You want to get it the way the Essenes and the Christians were getting it. The way that Christ said to get it. 
That's how you're going to get liberty and freedoms back. Is that you take back the responsibility of loving one another, caring for one another through faith, hope, and charity. And that will arm you in a way that you cannot imagine. Of course, we see that played out clearly when Moses came and brought the people out of Egypt. His people out of Egypt. And went down to the Red Sea and found themselves blocked by a sea. A red, what that we call the Red Sea. And, and prophecy in the allegory, and it says the Bible is an allegory in the Bible. Uh, it doesn't mean that the real events didn't take place, but it's trying to tell you more than just the historical events. And what it's trying to tell you is that this is this is the principles that are involved, and it may play out slightly different in from age to age, but the precept upon precept will still be there. That if you were to be brought out of the bondage that you're now in, and and that's see a lot of people don't want to even admit that. Again, the bondage of Egypt, twenty percent of your labor belonged to the Pharaoh. You didn't necessarily have to go and work in the mud pits. If you if you were a stonemason, they were going to take you from being a stonemason to go and work in the mud pits. You might you could go probably and they probably had some government stonework that they wanted you to do. Um maybe you were a bookkeeper, maybe you were an oil purveyor where you made oils and uh and that was your skill, and you were very skilled at it. Well, you could send money in place of what you owed in tribute. But if you didn't have the money, you could just go and volunteer. So even a poor guy could go and work for 20% of the year and work in these little, you know, they, they'd have these big camps, and they would go there, and then they would, you know, dig dirt or chisel stone or whatever to make the aqueducts and the all the different things that they're making as government projects. 20% of your labor belonged to the government. That was the bondage of Egypt. You didn't own your own land. You didn't own your animals. They always say that, you know, people sold all their animals to the pharaoh, well, uh, to buy grain and when the famine came. Well, did the pharaoh have to become a sheep herder? <laughs> I mean, he's got everybody's sheep, everybody's cattle. No, you got to keep your sheep and cattle. You got to keep taking care of them. Once you sold your labor, they had work for you. Got to take care of all these sheep I now own. But you don't own them now. Now you're working for him. And of course, that's what's gone on in America. And and that history of the process of uh, changing the nature of citizenship in America with the Civil War. Then changing the nature of the money of America with the Federal Reserve and then then going bankrupt in 1933 in the passage of HJR 192 and the passage later on in the repeals of uh, Public Law 95-147 and in uh, what was it 1986 uh, uh, they uh, repealed HJR 192 for the final repeal but you still can't own the gold and silver that you have in your pocket if you're a U.S. citizen because as a U.S. citizen, you're a collateral for debt. 
Now, Rome, when Julius Caesar, they changed the nature in which the the military of Rome operated, you know, a couple hundred years before Christ. And uh, there were several changes, but it drastically changed just before Julius Caesar became a general over several of those legions. And then he went to Gaul and said that there was a big problem in Gaul, made it bigger by harassing people, got them to try to fight back. And even when they wouldn't fight back, he shelled them with uh, fire bombs that uh, were fired from his catapults. When the people were trying to move out of his way, he was blocking them. And uh, then eventually goaded them into a battle. Almost lost the battle, but he had hired a lot of other troops from Germany, Teutons. And won the battle and ended up, before he was done, sold what they estimate to be a million Gauls into servitude, into slavery. Sent them south. Sent them to North Africa. Sold them wherever he could sell, wherever the market was good. And, of course, he, he pilfered all their gold and wealth and everything and their spoils. And then, of course, he had that land that Romans could now move into and settle. They didn't go all over, but they did They they did create lots of cities and trade routes and built roads and everything. And, like I said, the, there were a, a large movement of the Roman people that wanted to have him arrested for war crimes because they thought what he had done in Gaul was so horrendous but he bestowed so much of his ill-got gains upon the people through the temples, giving huge volumes of assets and money and buying grain, and because sometimes you're paid in grain. If you sold those slaves all the way into Egypt, you'd get grain from Egypt. Then you could fill the the treasuries of these temples that were providing the free bread for Romans, and Romans thought, yeah, a lot of the Romans, their conscience being seared, not minding, becoming accustomed to living at the expense of others. I mean, they're only Gauls, right? They're not like they're Romans. But they began to degenerate as a people. Now, uh, Herod didn't have the same power to do that, although there was some battles and uh, confiscation of property by Herod. I mean... Uh, he was doing that sort of thing, but he instituted another system, uh, which you can read about. I'm adding a new page. I haven't completely put it together yet. Uh, on the Temple of Roma. He didn't just build the temple in Jerusalem. He built the Temple of Roma uh, there. And uh, uh, there was a Temple of Roma in Rome, but he w- built one in Judea down by uh, uh, Caesarea Maritima. And uh, at, uh, Sebaste is the location you can go there and see the remains of them today. But he built this in accordance with the cult of Augustus, which was the imperial cult of Rome, which was this social political organization used to provide welfare for the people. And that's, of course, the way in which Julius Caesar had funded it. Now Augustus Caesar was able to fund it. It still was coming from the government, but he he made it very clear when he gave the equivalent of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, the equivalent of that, to these temples, which provided the free bread for the Roman citizens. 
and and for the people living in Rome. They weren't all Roman citizens. But uh, this was... The, it's like your stimulus checks. That's the same principle. Where you're getting stimulus checks or welfare and they add more people to the welfare rolls and they're going to pay for this and pay for that. The problem is now in America and Australia and all these other countries, they're borrowing money to pay for these things. But the critical thing is it's weakening the people. It's degenerating and searing the conscience of the people because they're becoming accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others. And I hear a lot of people talking about the government. The people I talked to the other day, they heard about uh, new bills where the United States is supposedly agreeing to a United Nations charter bills that means the citizens can't own guns. Now, such charters already are signed, were signed under Clinton, similar ones, slightly worded different, because he's agreed to have this, you know, when you're hearing about disarmament in the news way back with Clinton, it sounds, oh, great, we're getting the Soviets to disarm and we're reducing the amount of this and that and the other thing. And we've actually have treaties signed where you can only have so many armed soldiers of your army in your country at any given time. Well, one of the solutions to that is to put them in other countries, <laughs> like like uh, NATO countries and etc. We put our soldiers over there, and then they're not in our country, and so we kind of skate around that treaty that has already been signed. Uh, I'm sure there's violations of it and everything. Well, one of the violations of it is for... And still on the U.S. codes, one of the military, uh, I sh- shouldn't say organization, but military units that the United States, according to the codes, has relied on since the beginning of the United States and even before the United States in America, before they had created the U.S. Constitution, was what we call the militia which includes every able-bodied man between the ages of 17 and 45. I mean, it already includes that. And that's that's another concept you need to get into your head, that the militia is not something you necessarily join. You may join it and get organized in it, you know, by... But you're not really... You're already a member if you're 17 years old and able-bodied, according to U.S. codes. You don't have to sign anything. You may have to sign stuff to get organized, but you're already considered a part of the militia. At least even up to 45. Now, I'm too old for it, theoretically. And the people I was talking to yesterday are too old for it. But they said, we don't want anybody taking our guns, but the militia is part of your military. It's not a part of the federal military. It's not a part of the National Guard. It's the civilian army, the militia, the the people. That is part of the military. Well, according to that treaty signed by Clinton way back when, it doesn't really matter who signed it, uh, it's saying that we'll only have so many armed men. Well, you're going to have to disarm all the deer hunters (laughs) in Wisconsin because it's too many people. If you have so many people that are armed, you violated the treaty. 
Now, they're not doing that because they're going to run into a lot of... But what they're doing now is everybody is so concerned about... I mean, you got millions of people lost their jobs. I mean, we had another suicide. That's a... Uh, we've had three... I don't remember... Well, I, we've had more suicides in the last year and a half than all the time that I've lived here. We can put it that way. Why is that? Because... There's this air of depression coming when you put millions of people out of work and you drain their life savings. And But that's the goal. The goal of evil. I don't know if it's the goal, goal of somebody, you know, in uh, some sort of cabal somewhere. I would assume that evil is going to enlist such people. <laughs> but evil wants to destroy mankind. It wants man to... Break the first two commandments of God. What are the first two commandments of God? This is a trick question. Is dress it and keep it. That's the first commandments we see in the biblical text of, you know, to man by God. Dress it and keep it. Then he said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat of the tree of life. And we've explained all that. But what was happening in Judea at the time of Christ is that people were eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's why you had so many different sects and political parties and and the country was so divided and you had zealots and you had Pharisees and you had Sadducees and and it was changing the landscape of that society. They weren't united anymore as they were under Moses. When I say under Moses... Moses would not rule over them. Gideon would not rule over them. The temptations of Christ. uh, Christ would not rule over the people. He came to set you free in a real kingdom. And and when I read this uh, book by Hamilton, Temple Cleansing and Temple Bank, he he says there's this problem with... uh, the killing of Jesus. Why did they kill Jesus? Why did they provide the ultimate cancellation of Jesus? What they thought would be the ultimate cancellation of Jesus. Why did Cain hit Abel? Why did he cancel Abel? Well, it's the same thing. What was the conflict between Cain and Abel? Cain had altars of stone upon which he sacrificed things that he got from plowing the Adama. That's what it says, plowing the clay, plowing the earth. He plowed the earth. Well, that earth was Adama. And we're Adama. You're Adama. I'm Adama. All the citizens of South Africa and Australia and Europe, they're Adama. They're men and women. And to plow them to produce your income. And this is what Jesus was tempted, you know, turn these stones into bread. Go up on the high pinnacles of the temple and have power. You could, it was all about power. Three different ways in which to get power. The Levites were not to go up by steps because you might see their nakedness. That's what it says in the Bible. Of course, it doesn't have any, I mean, those have got to be steep steps. But he's talking about a hierarchy of authority of one over the other. Of men exercising authority one over the other. You don't go up by steps. The devil offered Jesus the position of being this high-ranking authority like Caiaphas over the people, over the government, over the welfare system. 
of that that nation, and he could have this power. I mean, the, we pointed out that now ex- people excavating the ruins of where the priests live found that they were more opulent than those of Herod, and Herod's were pretty darn opulent. But they had a lot of money and power. And that's why Ananias, Annas, as we say uh, in some places, uh, was putting each of his sons in the position of high priest. He was raking in the money. He was uh, taking graft and corruption from that. And he was becoming richer and richer. Kind of like, you know, Biden and Hunter Biden were just accused of taking a $900,000 bribe from Burisma. And, uh, the, and Burisma has admitted that they, they paid them the 900,000. And now all of a sudden, New York Times is realizing that we better get, better get on the other side of this story. <laughs> We're gonna be a laughing stock, like the rest of, you know, CNN and everything. So now they, they've come out in favor of free speech after they had been canceling people that were pointing all this stuff out. Months and months and months ago, over a year ago, you know, before the election, this information was coming out. Now, actually, people in the know knew that this was going on four years ago uh, because there were people in the European Union, in the, in the Parliament of the European Union coming out and saying that this was going on, this bribery. I mean, they didn't just build these <laughs> these labs and all these things and they didn't just start... Uh, bribing. I mean, you can go all the way back to Samuel, and the, and I'm going to tie all this together. We go back to Samuel. Why did they want to have a king to begin with? Because people were taking bribes. Now, why 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 do you need a king to get rid of people taking bribes, especially in ancient Israel, if you know how they were organized? And this is, in the very first paragraph, Hamilton is saying in his book, I haven't read the whole thing yet. I've read a lot of stuff in there. And I've got several other books I've been reading as well that all talk about the fact that these temples were banks. And, and, you know, in the book Covenants of the Gods, I point out that the temple, the arts of the temple, was the art of banking. Aaron knew the arts of the temple. And that's why he built a golden calf. You know, we you can read at Preparing You our article on golden calf. The golden calf is evidence that Israel was setting up a central bank. They are taking all their gold and depositing it with Aaron, who knew the arts of the temple. And in Egypt, the temple was the bank. And... Uh, they put their gold in there and you could tell if somebody robbed the bank because he'd come out and one of his legs was missing. <laughs> the statue, it was a way of securing it. If you just put it in chest, somebody would have to go in every day and open up the chest and make sure that nobody had put a brick in there and all this stuff and uh, you know maybe created fake coins or what have you or gold-plated lead or whatever. Uh, and replace them. You knew it was safe because you could see the whole statue there. Nobody's messed with it. So that was on deposit. A major nation wealthy. And it was a way of binding the people together. So that they would stay and defend the whole nation. Because their wealth was there in the central bank. In the golden calf. Now 
to people who have never heard that before, there you, you can imagine. Those of you who have heard me say this over and over again, all the people who haven't heard this will go like, what? Nobody ever told me that. I never heard that. But all the city-states who had these golden statues, they referred to, in, in Greece, they referred to those statues as reserve funds. And we know historically that they sawed off parts of those statues to make coins to pay armies when they were in a lot of trouble or when there was famines. Yeah, it's a, it's a reserve bank. And that was the problem. They were creating a central bank. And Moses said, no, you, you carry your gold. Well, how does the nation operate if you have all your wealth in your possession? Well, that's what Moses was showing them. And that's what we're showing you what Moses was showing them. Hamilton here doesn't quite get it. And we'll show you where he missed it. But we'll also show you where he is getting it and figuring it out. Why Christ was killed. And what you can do about all the things you see coming down today in our modern history. So... It's it's pretty clear to most authors that they cannot quite figure out why Christ was killed. And in our article on the money changers, we realize, or we should realize, why. And, and it's the age-old follow the money. That when he was tipping over those tables with his string whip, he was actually firing the money changers who were the porters of the temple. And if you read the Old Testament, you understand what why the king could fire the money changers because the money changers were taking graft and corruption and bribes. And they, you know, it, it was actually a purchased position at this point in Judaic, Judaic history. You actually purchased the seats on the left sides. And then you would collect and you could take a clip of the coin. You could take a portion of what you collected. And we're de- dealing with millions and millions of dollars and it was in the month of Adar and we explained all that. Well, firing those guys with his string whip mean that then the positions were now open and they could be picked the way they used to be picked a thousand years before in the origin with Moses, through the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Ten families got together, they picked a minister, he got together with nine other ministers, he picked a minister, and they worked their way up until they got to the high priests of each of the different tribes. And in that process, they were picking the porters of the temple. But most of the charity had taken place down in the local congregations and the congregations of congregations and they were taking care of one another because Moses said you had to love one another. He had to take care of one another. Their social safety net was all of society networking together. Now you can think of that as a numerical network but the key element is it's bottom up. It's not top down. I'm still getting people who think that it's top down. And and it's hard for them to get out of that rut because everywhere you look in the world, you see top down. Y'all, you see some democracies where you elect the guy at the top and then he tells you what you have to do. Well, that's just mob rule. And and 150 years ago, democracy was, well, less than that. Just 100 years ago. 
In the Army Field Manual, democracy was a bad and evil form of government. After World War II, democracy was what we're fighting for. That was a shift in our thinking. Somebody changed what it said in the Army Field Manual from democracy being a bad thing, like Polybius says, all democracies fail, and there's a reason why, and Samuel told you. He told Saul, and it's written in the text, why a democracy is going to fail, because ultimately the people elected Saul. And that was they wanted to have that king to fire the corrupt and the, the briber people. But what happens when the king takes the bribe? When your president, your prime minister is taking the bribe, who fires them then? Well, have you been creating that system for a long time? The people are too weak, too scattered, too disorganized to get rid of the crooks. And the king's not going to get rid of the crooks because he's one of the crooks. And Samuel's prophecy is going to take place and he's going to take and take and take and take and take. And when you cry out, God's not even going to hear you. And of course, that's where you're at today. You're so divided. But if you want to think that the problem is the ruler, no, the problem is you. you got to take it back one more step. You created the problem by centralizing power. didn't just always start with centralizing power, but that's where it goes. And Moses saw that that's where it goes when they centralized the wealth, where the, the gold was now going to be in the golden calf. And then next thing you know, your land is going to be uh, legal title only and your livestock is legal title only and you won't own anything and you won't even own your children. And they will have a full stock and you'll be back under the, you know, in the mark of the beast stuff they talk about in Revelations. Where the merchants of the earth the Canaanites of the earth. That's what Canaanite means. The merchants. The merchants of the earth. And we have an article up. You can go look that up. They will own you. They will own, in some cases, they'll own the very souls of men. The soul being that corporeal and corporeal hereditaments of personality in your conscience. They'll own your conscience. They say, this is good. And you will say, okay, that's good. They will say, this is evil. And you will say, that is evil. They will say, crucify this man and you will crucify this man. But it doesn't start there. It starts way back where you start not caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. You see, when there was corruption back in the days of Samuel, the people, if they hadn't already rejected God, they would have known that we can get rid of the corrupt guys. Because if we're in this Tens, hundreds, and thousands, bottom up, being respond, loving one another in the group of ten, but you know, families, ten families, but also loving the next ninety families as much as we love our own group of ten. We're not denominational. There's only one denomination, and that's God, the the righteousness of God. It's bottom up. Some people complain that I don't, I'm not constantly checking on all the people in, in the congregations. Well, that, that would make me, that's the hinge in, what I call the hens and chicks scenario. Where, but that would make me top down. You're only together because I'm checking on you all the time. I'm herding cats, so to speak. 
But that's not the way it works. You have to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You have to love those in that group of ten and the ones in the groups, the other nine groups of ten and the, and the other 5,000 families as much as you love your own. You can't just give to the, your, your buddies in your little home church. That's not kingdom. That's churchanity on a small scale. You don't want to have where you have, you know, a 5,000 man congregation. You have no way of helping one. You're sending everything up to your pastor and then he's trickling it down to the people. Of course, today in the modern church is 90% of the welfare is not by the church as it was 150 years ago in America. It's by the government. It's by pharaohs and Caesars of the world. Now that, after you've done that for a generation or two or three, you've weakened the people. You've degenerated the people until they want more and more. And they will not even admit that socialism is a covetous practice. That social security is a covetous practice. That welfare is a covetous practice. That public school is a covetous practice. That uh, a fire department by tax dollars is a covetous practice because you're you're literally taking from your neighbor the goods of your neighbor, the property of your neighbor, the labor of your neighbor to provide that social benefit. It makes you a part of a system where the men who call themselves benefactors are only giving you what they've taken away from your neighbor. That if you don't address that, it doesn't matter if you have an AK-47 or AR-15 or, and you're going to have a revolution and an insurrection and overthrow the corrupt people of government. You know why that won't work? Why that will lead you into destruction? It will take you to the top of Masada where you will kill yourself why? Because you're the tyrant. You've been taking a bite out of one another through men who exercise authority. And you have been devoured. That's the process. Until you address the social welfare of society through faith, hope, and charity alone, you do not have pure religion. Now, I mention that because I'm going to read you another line from Hamilton's book. First chapter. First page, where he talks about, if on the other hand, Jesus made no messianic claims, but simply preached a kingdom of God as a future kingdom, not of this world, the difficulty is compounded. But Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. And didn't, didn't he say his kingdom was not of this world? But he said his kingdom's at hand, but it's not of this world. And so, what is he really saying? Well, all you have to do is look at the Greek word world there. And is defined in your concordances as the constitutional order and system of government. And he only said that to Pontius Pilate, who was about to sit in the judgment seat, which we've gone over. Yes, but a lot of people, you need to understand there is stepping stones to the reasonability of Christ's ministry. 
He's saying to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And if Hamilton understood that, that it's not of your constitutional order, he wouldn't have just wrote the sentence that he wrote. Now, he's got a lot of good stuff in here, but you need salt. But your salt has lost its flavor because your ministers say to you that it's okay that you covet your neighbor's goods through the men who exercise authority. But Jesus said it was not to be so with you. If you're doing what your minister says, and he's saying that, and not doing what Christ said, or doing what Christ said not to do, you're not a follower of Christ. You're not born again because you're still doing works of iniquity. You're still coveting your neighbor's goods. You're under a strong delusion. I'm not attacking your delusion. I'm preaching the gospel of righteousness of God, of taking care of one another, if you have to go that route, but you have to choose it. You have to walk it. He goes on to say, even if he claimed to be the king of the future, it would be difficult to see how such an otherworldly king might be taken seriously by authorities of this world. He doesn't understand the word world. Just that one word. Because he's thinking it means of this planet. Of this this realm. No. That's not what the biblical text says. As a result of any... Uh, he says, any usual interpretation of Jesus' career it is difficult to understand why Jesus came to his tragic end. And, of course, he eventually gets into the fact that the cleansing of the temple has an important bearing on this question, particularly when this incident is seen in relation to, to the function of the Jerusalem temple as a bank. That's right, it's a bank. A brief history of the banking in temples of the ancient world will prepare us for an understanding of the Jerusalem Temple Bank. Banking is as old as coinage, sponsored by a state. According to the Constitution, the federal government has this right to coin money. Now, they gave the federal government that right because they knew, and, and coining money is not printing money, by the way. And that, that's a common, you, you'll see people talk, well, only the United States government has the right to uh, print money. Because the Constitution gave them that power. Printing money is not coining money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and people don't get that. They don't grasp that. That's another thing. That's, that's a different aspect to banking. See, Peter created a bank, too. But it was a different kind of bank. It wasn't a bank for profit. It wasn't a bank for usury. But we'll have to... And, and I've added to our Acts 6. You can go to Acts 6. We have the whole Bible up there. And you can read that. And I have... And our money changers. Because I'm now quoting and showing... Because there's... Like I said, there are a number of other books. They're coming out with the same information. It's been around for a long time. And but it's it's creeping out into the consciousness of some people who actually study these things. But uh, I was trying to think of one of the other. Oh, uh, the role of the temple in the Herodian economy by Megan Brashi. 
And you can actually read, I think, most of that online. Uh, but, uh, and then that's it. That, that was, I think she wrote that for Israel Museum in Jerusalem. But it, it's these people that are actually studying. They don't realize what they're uncovering. They haven't actually equated it to our time, necessarily. Although some are starting to do so. But it doesn't matter about those other guys. It matters about you if you start equating it. Because if you actually started following what Christ said to do, the way, you would start moving towards freedom. At first, you'd move towards the Red Sea. And this is what I told people when I wrote my first book. People said, well, does this work? I said, what do you mean work? It gets you down on the shores of the Red Sea, which is the people of the world, at your back. And all the armies of the Pharaoh coming down on you with everything they got. Now, the Israelites were armed. That was an important part of the thing, that they be armed. But the church doesn't necessarily arm you. You have to go arm yourself. That's what Rome used to do before they changed the nature of their army. But your arms are not what's going to save you. Not in the slightest. And if you think so, you've outgrown Christ. You're not going the way of Christ. Because he didn't say your arms were going to save you. If you if you get freedom by the sword, you, you're going to have it taken away by the sword. Israel did not obtain freedom by the sword. Now they had battles, but we can go into that at another time. But on the shores of the Red Sea, on the road to liberty under God, God fought that battle for them. And over and over again you see God intervening so that they were not overrun. But God is not going to hear you and not going to intervene if you haven't dealt with the basics of the gospel of the kingdom, which is seek the gospel, you know, seek the kingdom of God, this right to be ruled by God instead of all the other people that are ruling over your life. Seek that and the righteousness of God. You have to seek the righteous, and it is not righteous to covet your neighbor's goods. It's not righteous to borrow against the future of your children. It's, it's not righteous to enjoy the benefits of something and have to pay for them later. You know, that's the, the basic commandments are dress it and keep it. And and what are we talking about? Keeping what? This whole ecosystem. Not economy system, but ecosystem. If you understand the ecosystem, you understand the economy of God. And and like I said, squirrels store nuts. God's a capitalist. That that's the way it works. And so but that being said, you're supposed to dress it and keep it, keep the ownership of it on an individual basis, which you haven't done. You're not supposed to return you're not supposed to ever return to the bondage of Egypt, and there's nothing in the gospel that says that it's now okay to go back to the bondage of Egypt. You are in the bondage of Egypt in all these countries all around the world. And it's not the tyrant's fault. The tyrant is inevitable once you become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others. The solution is to do what Christ said. Now, yes, he said sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. 
He said to love your neighbor as yourself. Don't just love those that are in your group. You have to love people you don't even know. But the reason why is the same reason that when you become accustomed to living at the expense of others, you degenerate. When you start to sacrifice out of love for others, not just for yourself, but love for others, you regenerate. Because in the kingdom of God, that's the way it operates. In the kingdom of Satan, he operates by centralizing power, coveting authority, exercising authority one over the other. And you're either going towards one kingdom or towards the other. And if you're going to a church that says you don't have to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you just think a thought and you have saved yourself, they have misinterpreted the Bible. And you look, like James, at what you're doing. Are you really taking care of one another? So now you've got this congregation of ten. That's in the world, but it's not depending on the constitutional order and system of government for its social welfare. The bonds now that Moses was worried about that would be broken when you're bound by a golden calf and all that system are now going to be bound because that system is going to fail. The decline and fall of the Roman Empire was inevitable. Polybius said it, saw it. Uh, Plutarch really saw it, but he was trying other remedies. He wanted to uh, make it worse. Actually, some of his remedies wanted to make it worse. But he knew that it was the gifts, gratuities, and benefits that brought you into bondage. Not the guns of the tyrants. That's not what brings you into bondage. It's the covetous practices that make you merchandise and curse your children. Peter tells you that. And all the prophets are telling you that. So you have to deal with that issue first. So if you can form that congregation and actually, despite the denominational ideas and theories and all this stuff, you start caring about one another enough to tolerate one another to tolerate what you haven't learned yet. I I can see what you haven't learned yet. Maybe you can see what I haven't learned yet. You start the flow. Again, the Corbin of the Pharisee, the sacrifice of the Pharisees was forced offerings and it was making the word of God to none effect. But the sacrifice, the Corbin of Christ was free will offerings. This faith, hope, and charity. One was legal charity. One is fervent charity. Where you just want to give. Like God gave you. You you loving that character of God want to give also. But you want to give in a way that strengthens those that are in need. You don't want to weaken them by giving them too much. Spoil the child, so to speak. But that word Corbin, that, sa- that means sacrifice, means to draw near. And what you, that allows you, when you start to be humble enough to see that we've been doing it wrong and we're going to go this other way, this way of Christ, and you start being willing to admit that I was under a strong delusion, then that sacrifice will draw you near the tree of life, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit near you. And it will create a place in your heart where the Holy Spirit can actually work. Not the emotional spirit that comes from churches with a lot of 
you know, dancing and singing and praising and all this excitement and stuff. That's an emotional Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit might, it listens where it will. They might show up in those churches too. But where are those churches leading you? Is it leading you to depending more and more upon benefactors who exercise authority? Is it depending you, uh, leading you more to be dependent upon in hope? Because there is no entitlement in hope of faith, hope, and charity. And, and you have to guard against thinking that it's going to be an act of your own will that brings this about. You can't coerce these people of your congregation to gather, to help one another, to bless one another. The formula that are laid down in Mark and, and, and throughout the biblical text of this tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands is a formula. But it is the spirit of the individual coming together. Two or more gathered together. There also I am. They have to choose to gather with nothing but a love for the character of God, the character of Christ. And then it becomes bottom up. It's not top down. Then then you are sowing the the underwear of your Levite, of your minister. You're, you're, you're giving him the authority to be your minister. And you can take it away every day. It's, it's the world upside down. And see, that's the thing is that people see their liberties going and they, they remember all the stuff they were told about Christ. But it's an image of Christ without the full image of Christ, which makes it a lie. And this is where people are at, is that their their Christianity is a lie. And Christ warns us that many would come saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm doing these great things, and I'm going to defend my nation, I'm going to defend my neighbor, and I'm going to, you know, elect the right king, <laughs> whatever it is. But no, it's a false image of Christ. And, and over and over again, they warn you of this false image of Christ being held up and people worshiping that. You don't want to go that way. You want to go the way of righteousness. And it's simply only righteous if you're living by faith, hope, and charity. Hope in the fact that you're hoping that the other members of your congregation and all the other congregations actually start caring about you. Then, you know, the in in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbons, he says that the what was it that the emperors feared in the Christian community? They knew they were people of peace. They knew that a lot of them would, would uh, accept uh, persecution, even death, blessing the people that did it. The Essenes before them, it was written in Josephus that the Romans were so impressed by the Essenes because sometimes when they were torturing an Essene thinking he was guilty of some sort of crime, he would bless them. Weird. You know, why didn't he, you know, now the Essenes had swords. Everybody had swords. Everybody had knives. That was, you had that. It was a rough world. They even trained, militarily trained. But they weren't insurrectionists. They weren't going to overthrow the Romans. The Romans had been invited in. Now the Romans did bad things. But it's righteousness of God that protects you. It's not the sword. 
You're not going to get your freedom back with a sword. I'm not saying don't have it, but don't have faith in it. Have faith in Christ. Don't outgrow Christ. And and learn, because the kingdom of God is upside down compared to the kingdoms of the world, and it's going in another direction. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the Keys of the Kingdom. Again, uh, I've done a lot of changes or add additions and new articles, like I'm uh, still working on the Temple of Roma, the Temple of Jerusalem. You know, I've known for a long time that it was a bank, and but now I thought the other day, because of dealing with the people throughout the network and hearing what they have to say, uh, uh, I got an email late last night from someone in another country, and he's talking about going a particular way that he thinks is a better way. And and this is what the zealots did. The zealots thought they had a better way, and they actually would attack the Romans, and they created an army, and they fought uh, them, etc. Uh, and But they also ended up fighting some of their own people. They were creating division. Again, the... We have an article on the factions at the altar where the Pharisees and the Zealots and uh, and the Sadducees, and of course there were different factions inside those general category groups. Uh, but there was also the Essenes. Now, there were some Essenes at the altar of Herod. And when I say the altar of Herod, I'm talking about this welfare system of Herod that he set up with the the Pharisees. And the other Essenes would call them lovers of soft things. And there was a several different ways that's translated and worded, but basically they were at looking for the benefits of Herod's social welfare scene, a system that was built along the lines of FDR's welfare system, that you got to be a member and you had to pay in. And I came across some interesting things in another uh, old book where it was talking about... Uh, uh, Transportation being such an expense uh, at that particular time in history. And, uh, of course, they weren't using 18-wheelers. Although you could actually, when you were going down a Roman road, you were actually taxed according to the number of axles on your cart. If your foot traffic was one tax, uh, if you were pulling, you know, leading burrows or jackasses, uh, you would uh, pay for each one that you were leading. If you were... Uh, leading camels, it would be the same thing. That there was this, uh, charge, this, uh, that was charged to you. So I was looking at how, uh, that operated, and they said transportation costs were the chief component in estimating the price to a buyer. So, you know, where this came from, how far it had to travel is going to determine the final price. And so then I, I looked at, I was looking at, uh, you know, plenty, uh, you know, uh, around 20 or 32 or section 65 and, and I come across the fact that it says the cost of a camel load coming from Arabia to Gaza reached up to 668 denarii, theoretically for one camel to make that journey. And, uh, he says the lion's share of this expense on this long road was comprised of 65 caravan stops, according to Pliny, you know, in the same references. Uh, and he says there was tolls, duties, and protection costs. 
and uh, and Herod treasury profited from those dues. This is why they were building roads. This is why they were building aqueducts. This is why they were building. You know, Herod was building a lot of stuff, uh, amphitheaters, all this stuff, because they were money makers. And this is why he built the second temple with this scheme of a social welfare system where you had to sign up and through the synagogues, the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, that's how synagogues were organized, you, everybody paid in and it came up to the temple. And this is why they could have inlaid gold on ornaments and all this stuff. Because that was the show showing you that we got a lot of money backing us. Uh, but eventually they did go to borrowing. and uh, But they didn't get as bad as we are today. <laughs> but it was bad enough. But you see this progression. This is, this is why they were doing this. And now they still, again, right in this same period of time, we told you about that. We were going to do a whole program on that eventually. That they were starting to take out some of the silver of the Roman denarii. So that that huge figure of 600-some denarii is going to cost more. I mean, the camel won't even be able to carry <laughs> all the denarii. That, uh, that would be like, what, 600 dimes? To, so what, what is 600 dimes away? So that's part of the load. But the, they had the, this whole network... Uh, to get stuff around. And now we see that network actually being taxed and devastated. And they're eating away at it little bit by little bit. But the key thing is, is what is really eaten away is this ability to work together as a people. Like I said, when they saw the bribery and corruption in the upper echelons of the cities of refuge which was a part of their appeals court system, which we also have an article that explains that. In detail, when we go back to the Hebrew, we show you what these words meant. And and your common sense should tell you that there was a practical. But through sophistry, we've turned these altars into piles of rocks and we're burning up sheep. Or we're not doing that now, but that's what they ended up starting to do. Meanwhile, they had this corruption. But when Jesus fired the money changers with his string whips, something that only the king could do, then they could pick new ones. And they could have done that in the time of Samuel. They could have, you know, through this network of people that cared about one another and learned who they could trust and not trust, they could find, and also they would be given an insight into understanding who to trust and not trust. See, you cannot, you cannot see the charlatan. You cannot see the liar. You cannot see, you will listen to their smooth talk and you will believe that they're honest. If you're not honest, if you're really honest with yourself in your day-to-day life and with your neighbor and with those other nine people in your congregation and are willing to allow them free speech and to listen to them without, you know, I mean, you say, well, they're, they're trying to shut me up. They're not letting me speak. Well, are you monopolizing? I mean, there's, if... If you're on a, a, in an hour-long meeting with ten heads of families, and you take up fifty percent of the time, <laughs> and they don't get a chance to speak, then then you're oppressive. You're not you're not giving them the chance to speak on all our minister calls. 
there are numerous long pauses where everybody gets a chance to think about it. And when you used to go to a Quaker church, uh, I don't know what it's like now, but years and years ago, many, many, many years ago, 100 years ago, the Quakers would go in there and people would, you know, peek in at the Quakers and they weren't doing anything. Everybody was just sitting there. <laughs> well, they were giving everybody else a chance to speak because anybody in a Quaker assembly could stand stand up and speak. And of course, in the kingdom of God, every member of the congregation has a right to speak. A lot of people are timid and they don't want to do it, but you give them the time to speak and to share what they're thinking. Because each of you in the ministry of God is the minister of one another. You don't, as soon as you start electing a minister to sit up there in a pulpit to be the minister of the whole congregation, you're, you're headed towards dictatorships and totalitarian despots. Because if you're going to be the government of the people for the people and by the people, a phrase that came out of the Wycliffe Bible, in, in the introductory, then each of the people in that congregation are ministers of the gospel to one another. You don't, you're not looking for a minister who is an orator or a minister who studied all the Bible and, you know, knows Greek and Hebrew and everything. He can just be one of your congregation. He may conduct the meeting as one of your congregation. And the minister gets to sit there and rest. Because <laughs> you know, his job starts most of the time. You know, he may have, and we see this in the early church meetings that are spelled out by people like Justin. In the early part of the meeting, that minister, he tells you what everybody else is saying in the network. Because he's, he's your contact with the rest of the network. That's his job. He's not your spiritual leader. Your spiritual leader is the Holy Ghost. His job is to connect you with the other 90 and 5,000 families and 10,000 families and 144,000 families all across the network that is the kingdom of God. That's his job. Now, he doesn't know all those ministers, but he knows 10 of them and he knows a minister that knows 10 more and that's that's the plan. And then you'll have a network and you'll say, well, there's corruption here. There's bribery here. And you won't have to turn on CNN at all. You won't even need Fox News. You won't need to Google anything. You just go to church. Because the men who love you as much as they love themselves are looking out to find out what's going on in the rest of the world to let you know what's going to affect you and what you can do about it. And if there's bribery, they say, well... So-and-so picked this guy and he took a bribe. It looks like he took a bribe. <laughs> and so, suddenly, you start cleaning out that network of ministers of those who take a bribe or even look like they take a bribe. And it's not really that important because of the fact that it's not top-down. It's bottom-up. They had already started reversing the kingdom back in the days of Samuel. They were rejecting God and not following the ways of God. Now, I come along and say, like, everything you guys are doing is wrong. Now, of course, everything is not wrong. There's many good people in every church. There are really many people that are not far from the kingdom, even, even in the, uh, amongst the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. There were some that said, you know, like Christ makes sense. 
And they, they came to Christ to learn more. But I can tell you that there are many today in the churches that would consider me a heretic and want to destroy me. I, uh, I'm not going to remember his name. I'll save it for the afternoon show. Um, but I saw this playing out in Harvard and, uh, you know, where somebody came up with facts that contradicted what other professors were teaching. And suddenly, those are bad guys. And they had to get rid of him. And they unjustly, they they virtually murdered his career to cover the facts. They canceled him to cover the facts. Shocking. But, see, the good thing is, is that shows you that you don't want to listen to them. I mean, so many people have found out what they're teaching in the schools because of the, they were doing this distant learning and the parents are finding out and they're complaining about now what they were teaching them, the CTR and all that stuff. But they still want to send their kids to those public schools, which is a socialist system that is only there in place today. The public schools today, now the public schools 150 years ago, that this is not the case. But today, they're funded by tax dollars and tax dollars means that if your neighbor does not pay for your child's education, you will send a man with a gun to his house to take his house away from him. It's, you know, because he hasn't paid his property tax. And you're just so accustomed to you, you think that's the way it is. But that's not the way it is and wasn't that way in Israel where a place where God prevailed and became that way because they degenerated too. But the reason you're not free today is because you accept it. You've become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others and have desired the wages of unrighteousness at the expense of your neighbor and you did not love your neighbor. If you do not reverse that process, you will not be free. I don't care how many guns and ammo you buy. I don't care how much you train as a militia or a you know, a secret army or an insurrectionist army, you will not be free. Because the reason you're in bondage, the reason you've become merchandise, the reason that tyrants have taken over and bribes run rampant in the government, why all your congressmen and senators who've been in there for a little while on a small salary or, you know, relatively small salary, are millionaires. Why are they all millionaires? <laughs> they... That you know, that somebody was pointing out with Trump that says everybody's worried about a millionaire who becomes the president. I'm worried about all the guys who run for office and become millionaires after they get their office, which is it was a good point, good point. But the reality is the reason why is not because they're corrupt; they are corrupt. The reason why is because you're corrupt, because you're a little tyrant. You're a little dictator. You want to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. And your pastor, you pay your pastor a lot of money to tell you that that's okay and that you're saved anyway. It's not okay. And you're not saved and you're not born again. You could be. But you have to repent of the idea that it's okay to take a bite out of your neighbor. But then that's not enough. Then you have to become a doer of the word. Yes, start doing what Christ actually said. 
that's going to be difficult because when you gather together, no matter how small the home church is, your brain's going to want to fall back into those ruts where people should be listening to you. And, and maybe they should. Maybe you've got something good to say. But if you don't give your neighbor as much time as you want, you don't give your other congregants as much time as you want, then you're a little tired. Because you're still giving in to the spirit of tyrants. I have a quote just staring at me. I don't know what it says. <laughs> but I know who said it. Yuval Noah Haran. And I, I'm led to read it. Culture tends to argue that it forbids only that which is unnatural. But from a biological perspective, nothing is unnatural. Whatever is possible is by definition also natural. A truly unnatural behavior, one that goes against the laws of nature, simply cannot exist, so it would not need, it would need no prohibition. And of course, this is Yuval Noah Harari, the uh, poster child of uh, the Great Reset that we talked about before who thinks that this is the last generation of Homo sapiens because he's ready to biologically engineer man into a new species. (laughs) I mean, he's a historian, supposedly, but he gets a lot of the stuff wrong. But what he's saying here, and of course he's also gay, so that's why the unnatural uh, part of this uh, comes in. But like I was saying earlier in the show, that it says that you will be given over to unnatural behavior and of course now he's saying there is no such thing as an unnatural behavior well from a certain point of view he's right and this is always from a certain point of view Satan was right when he told Adam and Eve you will be like God what he didn't tell you is that you will die (laughs) if you proceed in unnatural behavior like all these people who committed suicide in the last two years that's an unnatural behavior. Suicide is an unnatural behavior. But they're dead. They're, they're still dead. And so, yeah, you can engage in an unnatural behavior and you say, because I engage in this, it must be natural. But, but you've, you've exterminated the Holy Spirit. And one of the things I'm going to talk about eventually is the fact that while Har- Harari is saying all these things and, and refers to uh, Israelis as being great at inventing myths because he considers the whole Bible a total myth. And the idea, he, he considers that we invented God. That's the beginning of civilization. And that that it finally will culminate in us becoming God. You know, which is, I mean, that's right out of the garden. The precept is right there. He has no clue what he's talking about. But he, to, from the point of view of Satan, he's right. But he doesn't believe that there's a spiritual realm. He believes that we're physical creatures, that that we're just a product of our environment, and we make all these decisions, and nothing's unnatural. But at the same time, physicists, you know, I, I did notice him when he was asked certain questions, he says, that's outside of my field of expertise. <laughs> so he couldn't answer. But physicists are saying that, you know, that there is... Other dimensions out there. I mean, the Bible says there's other dimensions. One is heaven and one is hell. These, those are, you know, Jesus refers to my father's house, there's many mansions. 
Is, is that like saying there's many dimensions? It's just a question of semantics. What's, what's he talking about? Well, we have to listen to the story and the metaphor and the allegory. But how do we know? Well, people who study the brain says that they believe these are scientists are coming up with conclusions, writing papers, peer-reviewed papers, that the brain is a, actually has mechanisms mechanisms in it that allows it to access to one degree or another these other dimensions. That and we don't need a cyclotron, you know, running uh, minute particles at huge rates and colliding, you know, these uh, colliding uh, deals that like it. Is it Ern in France there? You don't need that to open the door into these other dimensions, although they believe that it actually does. And they believe that there are physicists who believe that there may be entities living in these other dimensions, intelligent entities living in these other dimensions, and that they could, we could communicate between those dimensions through some sort of device. But then people who are studying the brain believe that the brain can actually access these under certain circumstances, to some degree, and be influenced from these other dimensions. Well, this is what the Bible has been saying. <laughs> so maybe it's not a myth. Maybe it's really true. So what, what does Christ say about, and what does the Bible tell us about getting access to these other dimensions of heaven and hell and getting guidance from the good one, from above? That's what born again means is born from above in a higher dimension. You know, I don't want to go all new agey on you or anything, but some, it's different terminology talking about the same thing. And one of the things it says is to be still and know. So you have to stop listening to all the other stuff. You know, all the other things that want you to respond to it and listen quietly in your heart to this still small voice that may be coming from another dimension. I, I've had calls from somebody who hears voices. I've, I've known a lot of people that hear voices and they call it schizophrenia. And you know, my experience is, is that all, you know some of these voices are manufactured in the person's mind, but what's stimulating that manufacturing? Now, some of them might be actually demonic. I don't know. It, I, I would take it on a case-by-case basis. But I know that the brain can create, you know, especially under stress, and a lot of people are under stress, it can create alternate identities to help you deal with that stress. Now, the reality is you want to see the whole truth of yourself so that you can see the whole truth of the world. And sometimes these mental things will take place. There are people who, they always said that schizophrenia could not be cured, and we've done articles and shows showing you that yeah, they're discovering that some people who had schizophrenia really bad, uh, they're cured. Some of them don't hear any voices anymore at all. And some of them still hear voices, but they realize where it's coming from. It's just kind of their subconscious way of communicating in their conscious mind. So yeah, like when I, I run into a writer's block, I have to go take, I have to go meditate and end up taking a power nap and I wake up and then I know Oh, I need to look here. I need to look there. It's like I got a message from somewhere. I didn't hear any voices, but my mind is clearer and I can go and I, now I can follow the track. And and often that drowsiness comes on me because I'm not following the 
what got you know I, I get caught up in the work and and then my will gets in the way and when my will gets it my will be done gets in the way I can't see I can't see the things clearly so I have to set my will aside I mean it's to write all these things and to look up all these things and to read all these things and then interact with other people I have to go out on the desert and be still get away from all the other commotion and ponder it. And it takes me a lot of times to respond to some people. <laughs> but, but then I'm not going to get into the hens and chicks ministry where I'm, you know, like, oh, I will tell you how to solve this and I will tell you how to solve that because I'm not the comforter. You can tell that by what I say a lot of times. I'm not here to comfort you. The comforter is the Holy Spirit and that's what I want to lead you to and show you. Or, but you have to go. You have to walk the walk and take the journey yourself. And it's a journey for me, it's a journey for you, and if you want to take that journey together, join us on the network. Go to preparingyou.com, join the network, or His Holy Church, and join the network. Until then, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.